Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter 19 of our book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Enlightenment. Here I'm going to be helping you understand the difficult human existence, sickness, aging, and death. This is where you learn about the life story of Gautama Buddha and what motivated him towards this journey to enlightenment. And you can use this to help you in your journey to enlightenment as well. You're going to be learning about his birth, his early life, his journey to enlightenment, his teaching career, and like I mentioned, what really motivated him towards going on this journey to enlightenment. You're going to be learning about these challenging times in your life, which is sickness, aging, and death, because oftentimes an individual really struggles during this time frame in the unenlightened mind that when you're experiencing sickness, aging, or death, you might really have difficult time in this period of time, but you can actually transcend that and get to the point where it's not difficult for you when you're experiencing sickness, aging, and death. And you may even experience a difficult time when the people that are close to you are experiencing sickness, aging, and death as well. So first I'm going to share with you the life story of the Buddha so that you can understand that and how it can relate to your journey, gaining some insight into your journey to enlightenment. But then we're going to finish up by talking about sickness, aging, and death and how this relates to challenges that you might be experiencing in terms of your own sickness, aging, and death or the people that are close to you. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly, welcome to all of you guys. Whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can ask questions as we go in our class today. You can put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Now, normally when I teach, I will usually pause about every 15 or 20 minutes or so and kind of pause for questions and see what it is that you guys would like to talk about related to the various things that I'm sharing. But today, based on the way that I've discovered to share the teachings here about the life story of the Buddha, it's usually best for me to just explain the whole story of the Buddha to you and then open up to questions at the end. So it only usually takes me about 30 minutes or so to really explain the life story of the Buddha. And the source that I'm using in order to help you understand the life story of the Buddha is the original teachings in the Pali Canon. The teachings of the Buddha are assembled in 45 large volumes, which are very thick, about five inches or 10 centimeters thick. And in these 45 volumes of books, you can actually see the life story of the Buddha that was documented. And in this story, I will share with you kind of 
a story that is based on that. And I'll even share with you areas where I think that this story was actually embellished and it may not be the actual real life thing that actually happened during the lifetime of the Buddha, but it really doesn't matter in large degree. But nonetheless, you're going to be learning and being able to ask questions about the life story of the Buddha. So I'm going to organize my talk with you around his birth, his early life, his journey to enlightenment, and then his teaching career and what he did during that time frame. And then we'll sum it up by talking about sickness, aging, and death and how that relates to your life. So the story of Gautama Buddha is that he starts off as a child that was born into a royal family. His name is Siddhartha Gautama when he was born. And his mom was a queen and his dad was a king. When his mom was pregnant, during this period of time when the mother was getting ready to deliver the baby, they would travel back to their homeland in order to give birth in their home. So the Siddhartha Gautama's mother was living with the king and she would have needed to travel back to where her parents live in order to give birth. So even though she was living with the king, she didn't deliver the baby there. She would need to travel to her parents in order to deliver the baby because they would be able to help. So they organized this caravan to take the queen back to her homeland. And as she's traveling towards her parents' home, she goes into labor pains. So they need to stop the caravan and she gets out. She goes over to a tree. She holds on to this branch of the tree and she's trying to deliver the baby while standing up. The baby wasn't able to come out through the normal birthing canal, so it ends up breaking through the side of her stomach. And because of the medical technology that didn't exist at the time, she ends up dying about seven days later. And because it was not uncommon for a mother and or a child to die during childbirth, they had certain protocols in place when these things occurred. And the protocol was that your siblings would adopt your child as their own child if you died during childbirth. So Siddhartha Gautama's mother had an older sister who ended up adopting Siddhartha Gautama as her own child. So his stepmother was his aunt and she raises him as her own child. It's said in the original teachings of the Buddha that when the Buddha was born, he wasn't a Buddha yet, of course, but when he was born, he walked immediately after being born. He walked seven steps and lotus flowers were blossoming under his feet and he spoke and he said, this will be my last life. I don't suspect that this part of the story is actually true. I think that what truly happened here is people embellished his story as it was handed down from generation to generation. Oftentimes when there's someone like Gautama Buddha who has such an impact on the world and does such amazing and significant things that people sometimes over history will tend to embellish a story in order to make him look even better than he already is. And we don't need to embellish the story of Gautama Buddha because what he did was already quite amazing. Because if this part of the story was true, that his son, this you know, child was walking seven steps, lotus flowers was blossoming, and he spoke immediately when he was born, the next part of this story wouldn't actually be needed. Because the next part of the story is that his father summoned advisors to come and help him to understand what his son was going to become. So essentially, he summoned fortune tellers to come and let him know what his son was going to become. Well, if your son is walking, talking, and lotus flowers are blossoming under his feet when he's first born, 
you kind of know that this child's going to be pretty special. You don't need people to tell you that in terms of a fortune teller. But nonetheless, this is the story that's in the original source teachings. And whether that actually occurred or not doesn't really matter because we have his teachings and this will help you to get to enlightenment. But I suspect that people embellish the story as time went on throughout history. So these 108 advisors come to Siddhartha Gautama's father and advise him about what his son is going to become. 107 of them share with his father that he's going to be a great monarch, a great ruler, that he's going to expand his territory far and wide. And of course, his father really likes this. And he's like, yeah, that's my boy. All right, let's go. My son's going to be this great king and this great monarch. Well, then there was this one last advisor who comes in and apologizes to the king and says, sir, I'm so sorry to deliver this news to you. I overheard those other fortune tellers or those other advisors, and they are correct that he is going to be a great leader, but not in the way that you think. He's not going to be a king and rule over your territory and expand your kingdom. He's going to be a great spiritual leader. And his father didn't like this. And just in case this person was accurate, what Siddhartha Gautama's dad decided to do was sequester him into the palace and not let him go outside. That he kept him in the palace trying to woo him into the ways of being a monarch, where he gave them wonderful food and entertainment and amazing fabrics for his clothing, great aspects of things that you could imagine with the royal riches that he had, that he was able to embellish him with all these things that a king would be able to afford beautiful women bathing him and taking care of him and all these things that he would never be able to get as a spiritual leader. He was trying to woo him into the ways of being a monarch and a ruler, thinking that he would never give up that life, such a wonderful life. So at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama gets to the point where he's about to become the king. Because during this time frame, you would become the king when you turned age 30. And your dad would retire, and then they would be right there alongside of you to help you become a really good king. So at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama, being in the palace his whole life, realized that he's about to become the king and rule over this population of people, but yet he's never been outside the palace. He doesn't even know what the kingdom is like, so how could he rule over these people and this population of people and guide them and be a leader if he didn't even understand what was going on outside the palace? So without his father knowing and against his wishes, he ends up going outside the palace and kind of sneaking outside with his chief attendant. This is like kind of like a chief of staff or his royal attendant. This is someone who knew Siddhartha Gautama very well and that he trusted this individual. So he went outside the palace and he had what we refer to as the four observations. The four observations are where Siddhartha Gautama observes a sickly person, an aging person, a dead corpse, and then a roaming aesthetic, a monk, someone who's given up worldly possessions to seek out a better understanding of life and potentially get to enlightenment. And when he sees these four observations, it has an enormous impact on him. And his royal attendant needs to explain to him what's going on because he doesn't understand what's happening. Because he sees this sickly person and he sees this disgruntledness and this agitation and this irritation from this person and the people around this person. 
and he has to ask his royal attendant, like, what's going on over there? And his royal attendant explains to him that this person is sick, they're ill, they're not going to be able to work, they're not going to be able to acquire the resources that they need in order to sustain their life, and the people are very disgruntled and frustrated. And this is very outside of what Siddhartha Gautama ever really understood because being in the royal palace, everything was provided to him. He had all these royal riches, so he didn't understand any kind of frustration that might arise due to not being able to work and being sick. And then he sees an aging person, someone who's kind of older and decrepit and having difficulties walking and conducting their life and feeling all the aches and pains of aging. And he needs to ask his royal attendant what's going on over there because he sees the agitation and irritation and frustration. And again, his royal attendant explains to him what's going on, that this person's frustrated because they're getting old, their bones are aching, and they're having difficulties working, and the disgruntledness with that person and the people around them. And Siddhartha Gautama understands this from his royal attendant, and this has a real impact on him because his life isn't that way at all, and he sees this happening in the kingdom. Then he sees a dead corpse and the people grieving around this dead corpse. And again, he has to ask his royal attendant, like, what's going on over there? He didn't even understand that at the end of this life that we're all going to die. So his royal attendant needed to explain that to him. And then he saw this grief and misery and sadness. And Siddhartha Gautama comes to the conclusion that the kingdom is full of misery and despair. And he realizes that this is what he's going to be ruling over as a king. And then he sees this roaming aesthetic, someone who's given up worldly possessions, who's going off into the world trying to get to enlightenment. And he needs to ask his royal attendant, what's going on with this person? What is that person doing? And the royal attendant explains to him that he's trying to figure out this sickness, aging, and death, and why the mind experiences all these difficulties and struggles in the human existence. So Siddhartha Gautama decides that that's what he would like to do, that he is not interested in ruling over this kingdom of misery and despair and sadness, but instead he was interested in helping the people and figuring out how to escape this sickness, aging, and death. So he goes back to the royal palace, and by this time it's nighttime, and he has a wife and he has a young son who is an infant and they're sleeping and he decides he's not going to wake them up that he's going to just leave the royal palace and go on this journey without his wife or his son knowing about this and he's just going to leave and he felt like this would be easier for him because he didn't understand the unenlightened mind at this point because he's not yet enlightened but he understood enough that he felt like if he would have woke them up that he would have a really hard time leaving the royal palace. So instead of waking them up, he just kind of looks in on them and then he kind of heads out with his favorite horse and his royal attendant. And then when he leaves the palace, he is going on this journey to get to enlightenment. He's leaving all these things behind. And now eventually he gets to a point where he tells his royal attendant that he can go, he can leave, that he's been a great attendant and he doesn't need him anymore and he can go back to the palace. And he turns loose his horse and lets his horse go and he ends up cutting off his hair. At this time, he has this long, beautiful flowing hair that he's been growing for 29 years. And the reason why an individual would grow their hair very long like that during the lifetime of Siddhartha Gautama is that if you were a member of the royal family and you went out into the kingdom with this long, beautiful flowing hair, they would know that you're a member of the royal family. Where 
the commoners who were working in the fields and doing labor work, they wouldn't be able to have this long, beautiful flowing hair because it would get tangled, it would get knotted up. We wouldn't have time to shampoo it and take care of it the way the royal family would. The royal family could have servants detangling it, shampooing it, and taking care of it because they had time to sit around and be able to do that. So this is how people knew that you were part of the royal family. Nowadays, if there's a king or a queen or somebody like this, we would just take their photos and put them all over the internet and all over the kingdom, and the people in the kingdom would understand who the king and the queen are and all the other members of the royal family. But that technology didn't exist back then, 2,500 years ago. So this is how they could distinguish who was part of the royal family. So cutting off this long flowing hair at the age of 29 is like saying, I'm never going back because nobody would ever believe that he was the king if he didn't have this long, beautiful flowing hair that he would have nurtured ever since his birth. This also helps you to accomplish what's called realizing non-self or eliminating personal existence view. This is something that I talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about chapter 16. Not everybody needs to cut off their hair in order to get to enlightenment, but this is one step that somebody can take to really accelerate their elimination of personal existence view. So that's another reason why someone might cut off their hair and we continue to do that today. So he ends up cutting off his hair and then taking up training with two different teachers. He was interested in solving these discontent feelings that he was experiencing. And there was various teachers in his area where he was growing up and he was living that were claiming that it was their teachings that lead to enlightenment. He was born in modern day Nepal and then he ends up teaching in Northeast India. But those lines of Nepal and India didn't exist 2,500 years ago, but today that's what we would call it. So in this region of the world, there were various people that were claiming that they had discovered what it took to get to enlightenment. So he studies with this first teacher. And this first teacher teaches him to hang himself upside down from trees, to lay on beds of nails, to pierce his body with metal implements, to starve himself. And the thought was that if you could cause this physical pain to the body and your mind could overcome that physical pain, that you could experience enlightenment. So Siddhartha Gautama gives this a try, and this is what he's learning from the teacher. And he gets to a point one year into his training that the teacher had declared that Siddhartha Gautama learned everything he had to teach him and declared that he was a master of his teachings and that he could now teach that teacher's teachings. And Siddhartha Gautama realized that his mind wasn't any more peaceful or calm or joyful than it was when he was in the royal palace. So he knows that he hasn't gotten to enlightenment despite what this teacher has told him. So he decides to move to a second teacher. And now this second teacher is essentially teaching him the same things with a little bit of variety. And the same thing occurs that after about a year, he declares that Siddhartha Gautama is a master and that he can teach his teachings. And Siddhartha Gautama, frustrated with the whole experience because he feels like he's wasted two years of his life, realizing that he's not enlightened because his mind is not peaceful and it's not joyful, it's still discontent. He decides to go off on his own and he leaves these two teachers behind. Now he goes off into the forest, but when he's in the forest alone by himself, the only things that he knows is what he was taught by these other teachers. So he's still doing these aesthetic practices that he's starving himself. He takes it so far that he's only eating one grain of rice per day. And as he was doing this, 
his body was deteriorating. His ribs were protruding. His facial bones were protruding. He was essentially on death's doorstep. And as he was in the forest meditating, there was a woman and her young daughter that come by and they see him, that he's malnourished and his bones are protruding and he doesn't really have any meat on his bones. He's just basically skin and bones. And they plead and beg with him to eat some rice. And he reluctantly accepts this rice and decides to start eating the rice. And he realizes in this moment something very profound that really propels him forward in trying to get to enlightenment is that he realizes what's called the middle way. He realizes that when he was in the palace, he was living these central pleasures, that he had everything you could imagine that the royal riches could purchase. But then when he left the royal palace, he went all the way to the other side. He swung all the way to the other side where he was eating one grain of rice per day. He was disparaging the human body. And he realizes that neither two of these extremes actually leads to enlightenment. So he starts forging this middle way where he decides to start eating in moderation, where he eats one meal a day. And again, you don't need to eat just one meal a day in order to get to enlightenment, but you will need to learn how to eat in moderation where you're not eating based in emotion. But he learns this middle way and he discovers this. And ultimately, when he starts teaching later, he he talks about this in terms of a musical instrument. And he talks about how if a musical instrument if the string is too tight and you pluck it, it doesn't play beautiful music the way that this instrument was intended to play. But if the instrument string is tuned too loose and you pluck it, it doesn't play beautiful music there either. It doesn't play the way the musical instrument is intended to play. And he discovers that the human mind functions the same way, that if you hold on to things too tight or if you're too loose, that the mind doesn't perform optimally. It doesn't have focus and concentration and clarity and deep memory that the mind is discontent. So he starts forging this middle way, not just with his eating, but with all other aspects of his life. And over the next four years, a total of six years, he discovers what it takes to get to enlightenment. And it wasn't any of those teachings that were shared the first two years. It was what he had discovered on his own. And now he gets to the point after this six-year journey where he knows that his mind is enlightened because his mind is peaceful, it's calm, it's serene, it's content with joy. He's no longer experiencing any discontent feelings such as anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest displeasure is eliminated from the mind. By the time you get to enlightenment, you're not even in a bad mood anymore. So he knows that he has attained this mental state on his own without the help of any teachers or any guides. So he knows he's going to become a Buddha. But his teachings are so vastly different than anything that was being taught at the time he wasn't sure whether his teachings would be well received and whether or not he should share his teachings into the world. So he goes to this tree and he contemplates at this tree for about seven weeks of whether or not he should actually share his teachings. And ultimately, he does decide to share his teachings. People tend to attribute this tree to the location where he attained enlightenment. But in reality, he attained enlightenment over a six year journey. But because he contemplated at this tree for seven weeks, people declared that and the Buddha actually even designated this tree as a place that could be respected as where he actually attained enlightenment, even though it happened over a consistent long-term period. So 
At the end of seven weeks, he decides he is going to share his teachings with others rather than go back to the royal palace. And he starts to travel back to the area where he was learning with those first two teachers. And he comes in contact with four of his previous classmates and one of his previous teachers, these first five people. And when they see him coming, they see that he has meat on his bones and he looks pretty healthy. And they started mocking him and joking him because in their mind, in order to get to enlightenment, you need to be disparaging the body and doing these horrible things to the body. You needed to be starving it. So when they saw meat on his bones, they thought that he had actually given up. So they start mocking him and joking him and ridiculing him. But of course, by the time you're enlightened, none of that actually affects you. Your mind is peaceful and joyful no matter what's happening around you. So he didn't experience any kind of discontentedness in that situation. Instead, he just comes over, quietly sits down, and then he takes his hand and he touches the earth. And he performs this first miracle and the only miracle that he ever performs in his entire life. And what he does when he touches the earth is these animals come to where he's at. There's deer and squirrels, rabbits, birds, snakes, lizards, all these different animals come to where he's at. And now these five people seeing this miracle being performed, they were like, okay, you've got our attention. What do you have to say? (laughs) And he sits down or they sit down actually because the Buddha was already sitting down. And now he starts talking and he starts delivering his very first teaching, which is called the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are four simple statements where he's sharing the problem in the unenlightened mind. He shares the cause of that problem, what's actually causing it. Then he shares the elimination of that problem. And then he shares the path forward of how to completely eliminate the discontent mind. And in these four simple statements, those five individual students could independently verify through their own direct experience and their reflection that he had indeed figured out how to get to enlightenment because he understood what was causing this problem in the unenlightened mind. And they could independently verify that. So they knew that he had gotten to enlightenment. And at this point, they are his first five students that now learn with him throughout their life. And ultimately they get to enlightenment. During the teaching career of Gautama Buddha, his son and his wife, his stepmother, his cousins and brothers-in-laws and people like this all come to learn with him to the point where the royal family was starting to fall apart and his dad comes and pleads with him to stop ordaining people to learn with him because the family was falling apart. And Siddhartha Gautama institutes a guideline that if there's anybody who's interested in ordaining, they would need to first get the support of their family before he would ordain them and take them on as a student because he knew that someone coming out of the household puts a strain on the other people in the household. So he needed to have this approval or support in order for him to accept somebody as a student. So even though he leaves his wife and his child in the royal palace, he does come back and his wife gets to enlightenment, his son gets to enlightenment, his stepmother gets to enlightenment. All these people are getting to enlightenment around him. This is essentially the three criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha, is that they independently discover the teachings that it takes to get to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or any guides. The second criteria is that they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings with countless people during their life. And then countless people get to enlightenment during that person's lifetime. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. 
So these are the three criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. They get to enlightenment by themselves. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing teachings and countless people get to enlightenment during their life. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. And this is how we know that Gautama Buddha was indeed a Buddha. So this is what people experienced during his lifetime, that they were learning and practicing directly from this individual who has deep, 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 profound wisdom. What a Buddha is doing is they're laying lights along the path and illuminating the path so that more and more people can understand what it takes to get to enlightenment. A Buddha doesn't go around performing a bunch of miracles in order to convince people who they are. They don't guilt, shame, and fear people into learning their teachings. They're not creating rules or commandments. They're not teaching rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship. They're not teaching any of that stuff. They're helping you to learn the natural laws of existence. They're not explaining to you the way the world should be. They're explaining to you the way the world is based on these natural laws around you. And as you learn these natural laws, your mind awakens to this wisdom to then be able to train the mind and get to this peaceful and joyful mental state. So the Buddha was sharing what it took for him to get to that enlightened mental state with all those people who are interested in learning and practicing the teachings to experience the same mental state. So not everybody understood that he was a Buddha during his lifetime. So there's not like turn of the ear or a special mark on the forehead or something like this that designates somebody as a Buddha. But if you understand what a Buddha is, you can potentially identify a Buddha. A Buddha is very rare in the world. The last one that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. But as he was teaching, there was various teachers that were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. But he knew it was his teachings. So sometimes those teachers and their students would come to the Buddha and they would talk and discuss the Buddha's teachings. And sometimes these teachers would get so angry and frustrated that they would get up and storm out of the meeting. And then those students would realize that their teacher isn't enlightened. And those students would end up becoming students of the Buddha. Or sometimes that teacher would be so moved by what he heard from the Buddha or what she heard from the Buddha, and they would end up becoming a student of the Buddha themselves and bring their students with them. So in this way, his community kept growing and growing and growing and growing as more and more people were learning the wisdom of what it took to get to enlightenment and they could see the condition of their mind improving. He ends up dying at the age of 80, so he teaches for 45 years without any expectation from anybody for anything. He just shares with gratitude, with loving kindness, with generosity, with compassion. He just helps people that are interested in learning and practicing the teachings to train their mind, to be able to experience the same mental state. But it was the sickness, aging, and death that was really the motivators that motivated him to go on this journey to figure out why is it that people feel so discontent and experience difficulties when they're having sickness, aging, and death for themselves or for other people in their life. And what he ends up discovering is that it's craving, desire, attachment. It's the longing, the yearning, the wanting, the expecting. The unenlightened mind is craving permanence. It's wanting things to be a certain way. And if the unenlightened mind gets what it wants, 
it gets these pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. But if the unrelated mind doesn't get what it wants, it experiences painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. So essentially the unrelated mind, if you wake up and you see that it's sunny outside, you might get happy and excited. But then if you go take a shower and you come back and you see that it's raining, you might be sad or frustrated. Because you formed your inner feeling of happiness based on the sun, that's what we call a conditioned feeling. That conditioned feeling means that the feeling is going to arise, it's going to change, and it's going to fade away because it's based on some condition. And that condition is impermanent, meaning the sun. And then when that condition changes, now your happiness changes too. It changes to sadness or frustration. The same thing is occurring with maybe your bank account. If your bank account is a certain balance, you might get happy, but that's a conditioned feeling. So now when your bank account drops below that, now you get sad or frustrated. Or if your mom does a certain thing or your boss does a certain thing, you might get happy. Or if you get a new car, a new house, or a new job, or a new friend, you might get happy. But then when things start to change, then your mind ends up in the sadness or the frustration. The mind is essentially causing its own discontent feelings because it's craving permanence, wanting things to be permanent. But yet you live in an impermanent world. Everything around you is impermanent. So the moment you form a pleasant feeling based on some condition, that condition is impermanent. So you're just setting yourself up for some painful feelings later. So the Buddha realizes that the reason why people are sad or frustrated or agitated when they're sick is that they're craving permanent health. They want this body to be permanently healthy. They're expecting it to be permanently healthy. They're craving, they're longing, they're yearning. And this body isn't going to be permanently healthy. And the same thing with aging, that an individual might be craving youthfulness and wanting that youthful appearance or to have a body that is more youthful. But this body is impermanent. So if you form your inner feelings of happiness based on being youthful, now when you age and you see a wrinkle or a gray hair or you're losing your hair or you get a little bit of fat here or there or something like that, you might experience frustration or agitation. And then the same thing with death, that if you're holding on to this world, craving existence to be permanent or you're craving for other people to be permanent, then when you're confronted with this impermanence, the unrelated mind doesn't like it. So when grandma or grandpa die, or mom or dad, or brothers or sisters, or friends or family members, the mind can grieve and be sad in this situation if you're holding on to these people, wanting them to be permanent, when in reality they are impermanent. And the same thing with your own life, that if you're holding on to this existence, wanting it to be permanent, as you're getting closer and closer to death, you might really struggle with this. But you can liberate the mind from all of this by training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So not only does the Buddha discover that craving, desire, attachment is the cause of discontentedness and why an individual experiences frustration and agitation during sickness, aging, and death, but he also discovers that this is the cause of continuous rebirth over and over and over again, where a being is coming into the world over and over and over again. This is called the cycle of rebirth or the cycle of new existence, where there's a new being that is formed based on an old being that hasn't yet gotten to enlightenment. 
So everything that you learn from me, you should never believe anything that I share, including the cycle of rebirth. When you get to a certain point in your development on the path, you potentially will approach the cycle of rebirth and be able to independently verify this through the teachings that you learn about the cycle of rebirth. Right now may or may not be that time, but next week we're going to be talking a little bit about the cycle of rebirth. But the cycle of rebirth is what true reality is. This is actually what's occurring. And the Buddha could understand this because as he was lifting the pollution out of his mind, his mind moved to this higher consciousness and he was able to observe his past lives in these five realms of existence. And not only can the Buddha experience that, but there's beings today and all throughout history that have experienced that same thing. You may even be experiencing some residual memories from your past lives. If you experience deja vu, you might notice that you're doing something that feels utterly familiar to you, but you know you didn't do that in this life. These are residual memories from your past life circulating and bubbling up to the surface of your mind. Or if you've ever been around somebody or known the story of somebody who's four or six years old, who's never seen a piano, for example, but yet they can put their hands on the piano and they can play masterful piano and they've never taken a lesson one day in their life. And this individual has residual memories from their previous lives. Or there can be people in this life who can speak five, 10 different languages, even though they've never studied those languages themselves, that these are residual memories from their previous lives where they spoke those languages. And now even in this life, even though they've never studied those languages, they can actually speak those languages fluently. So these are residual memories. And there's other ways that you can independently verify the cycle of rebirth, depending on what your experiences are. So the Buddha discovers that the core thing that is causing discontentedness and causing this continuous rebirth, which causes the issue where someone does experience sickness, aging, and death, is craving, desire, attachment. This longing, this yearning, chasing after the objects of your affection, thinking that the next new shiny object waiting around the corner is going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. And this can be eradicated and eliminated from the mind where you're not chasing things, but also you're not indifferent and just sitting around feeling lackluster and lazy and complacent. But instead you come to the middle way where you're pursuing things as a goal, as an objective or an interest rather than chasing and thinking this thing is going to provide lasting satisfaction. Instead, you pursue things in wise decision making as a goal, an objective or interest. But the analytic mind doesn't know how to do this right out of the box because all it really knows is to chase things and chase and chase and chase. I want that new job. I want more money. I want new friends. I want a new house. I want a new car. I want, 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 want. And the mind will chase things. And that's how it knows how to pursue things in life. Or the mind will swing all the way to this other side where it'll be dull and indifferent or lazy or lethargic. It doesn't understand this middle way. So this path that the Buddha teaches is to train the mind to uproot the pollutions of the mind and now get to a point where the mind can experience the brightness and the radiance of the enlightened mind. So let me just pause here and see if there's any questions that you guys have related to anything that I've been sharing so far. You can put this into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions yet. So what I'm going to do is, is that somebody? Oh yeah, Marcy, there you go. Marcy asked a question. Go ahead, ma'am. 
Thank you, Teacher David. If it's okay, it's not really what pertains to this, but um, it is a question about the other day I was experiencing some discontentedness. The mind was intellectually aware that I was experiencing this discontentedness from because of the impermanence of the situation, but I was having this struggle getting the, the body to let go. Is it just going right back into breathing mindfulness meditation? Should I just literally drop everything at that point and just go into breathing mindfulness meditation to, to get the, it to let go? That's, Does that make sense? <laughs> that's one way that you can do it. You'd like to be able to cut off and let go. And early in practice, I teach to redirect the mind. Like if you're sitting on the couch and you're watching the news and you're noticing this frustration building, you can actually redirect the mind by turning off the news, going for a walk, going for a bike ride. This will help the mind to cut off and let go if you can't internally cut it off based on the meditations that you've been doing as proactive training and the generosity that you've been doing as proactive training. So one of the things you can do to redirect the mind is you can go into breathing mindfulness meditation. That's one way to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions yet. Let me just check one more time. Okay, it looks like Mayuli is asking a question here. When monks get ordained, they shave their head. Did this stem from Buddha cutting off his hair when leaving the palace? Yes, this is where it came from. Because the Buddha taught to shave off the hair because while he did it initially as a way of saying, I'm never going back to the royal palace, he would have understood as part of his journey to enlightenment that this helps to realize non-self. This is part of his teachings. This is what he's teaching in order to eliminate personal existence view. And there's many proactive things that you can do to eliminate this personal existence view. This is one of the fetters or the taints or the pollutions. An individual can cut off their hair. That's one part of it. But not everybody has to do that. I know people who are either enlightened or close to enlightenment who haven't cut off their hair. So while this is something that can propel you, it's oftentimes very challenging for a woman to choose to cut off their hair. But this is something that can really help an individual if you can bring the mind to cut off your hair. It's typically easier for a male to cut off their head hair but more challenging for a male to cut off their facial hair, perhaps, if they have facial hair. So these are all attachments that the mind can cling to, thinking that this body is you and who you are. So by cutting off the hair, it helps you to let go of that personal existence view, realizing that this body isn't you. And this is one of many proactive ways to train the mind to realize non-self and eliminate that personal existence view. Okay. I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So I just have one more thing to share with you guys on this topic. Oh, Marcy, you have a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, Titi. The question I had was the lifetime of the Buddha, you said that he lived uh, till he was 80. Was 80 like a very long lifespan for the people of that time? Or was that considered like an average? I, I just, I'm just wondering in comparison, did his life expand longer than the norm? I suspect that that was a longer life than normal. I don't know with 100% certainty, but I know like here in Thailand, the average lifespan is only about 67 years old. So that's now 2,500 years later. So I imagine during his lifetime without modern technology, that that was an extremely long amount of time for people to live. Because I think even in like 17 to 1800s, 
human beings, you know, oftentimes only live till 30, 40 years old and kind of 50 years old was a really long time frame. There's documentation in the Pali Canon where students that the Buddha had that were younger than him were dying before the Buddha himself. So I suspect that this was a really long time for an individual to live because a Buddha, they're not causing any harm in the world. They're only doing wholesome things. So he would have been able to have a very long life where someone who was doing things that were unwise and unwholesome would have a shorter lifespan. One of the things that I can share too here while we're talking about a Buddha is that Gautama Buddha describes that a Buddha is very rare in the world. And remember, a Buddha needs to meet those three criteria. And there's other criteria too that make a Buddha a Buddha. You can hear from some people that will tell you that you are a Buddha or that everybody's a Buddha. But the Buddha himself didn't actually say this. And some people refer to him as the Buddha or Gautama Buddha. There's different spellings for his name. But even other cultures like Bangladesh or China or different places like this, they have even different names for him besides Gautama Buddha. So most people in the English-speaking world will refer to him as the Buddha or Gautama Buddha. But you'll see different variations of this due to impermanence. And not everybody refers to him in exactly the same way. Okay, I'm going to check online one more time, see if we have any questions there. Okay, we have another question from Mayuli. Where did the yellow robe stem from? The reason why the ordained practitioners wear the color of robe that they wear is because during the lifetime of the Buddha, they used certain natural substances in order to dye the robes rather than go around in white fabrics or other colored fabrics. They used things like jackfruit and various herbs. They would boil the fabric and this would turn the robe kind of a, a burnt orange color or yellowish color. And if you can imagine being around during that time frame, they were probably sitting on the ground quite a bit and sitting in places that weren't necessarily the most clean. So sitting around in a white robe, it would be very challenging for them to keep that clean. Where nowadays it would be a lot easier to, to stay in white clothing and stay clean. So they used the herbal substances and the jackfruit and other things like this to be able to boil the fabric. And that's what turned it that particular color. I saw another hand go up. I think it's the gentleman with Charlotte. Did you still have a question or did it get answered? Uh, yeah, it's, it's Brent. Sorry. Um, I heard that on the Buddha's deathbed, he asked like all of his students, does anybody else have any questions? Do you guys seriously have any doubt? I'd like to address it now. They all said no. And he basically said, I think you're being polite, like tell a friend and they'll tell me. Do you know, does that have any historical relevance? I haven't seen that anywhere in the Pali Canon. I have his last words in the book series that I share. And his last words were essentially sharing with people like, okay, strive on untiringly, like don't give up on the path to enlightenment. And he's talked about impermanence, which is the very first aspect of what you learn on the path to enlightenment. Because being a wise Buddha, he would have known that his last words are going to be very impactful and very helpful. So he used his last words to actually talk about his very first teaching so that if anybody came across his last words, then they would know where to start on the path to enlightenment. And you can see these in the book series that I share. I think even in volume two and some of the other volumes, you can see the chapter that's titled the Tathagata's final words. Uh, Tathagata is a Buddha. This word means one who shares the truth or one who's discovered the truth. So you can see what his actual last words were that are documented in the Pali Canon. Thank you. 
Yeah, you're welcome. You'll find that as you explore different resources, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the life story of the Buddha. There's some people that will tell you that he died by eating a poisonous sandwich, which isn't actually in the Pali Canon at all. And the, usually what they'll share with you is that the Buddha knew that this sandwich was poisonous and somebody else was going to eat it and he decided to eat it instead so that person wouldn't die. But that's one of the most unwise things you've probably ever heard, because if you knew that there was a poisonous sandwich, you would just take it off the table and throw it away and destroy it and make sure nobody ate it. Why would you eat it? That's like committing suicide, right? So the Buddha actually didn't die from eating a poisonous sandwich. But you'll see a lot of these types of misunderstandings in the world. And that's one of the beauties of studying the original words of the Buddha is that you can see what he taught and what he didn't teach. And then you'll be very clear about those teachings. And then you don't believe them. You learn them, you reflect on them, and practice them to independently verify them and see the truth for yourself. Looks like Marcy has a question here. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, you had said that that reference that you give us, if we type it into Google, we are going to be brought up the actual passage within the Pali Canon that relates to your teaching. And I have done this a few times, but what I'm coming across is is quite a bit of impermanence. It seems like there's very many different variations. I'm having a difficult time actually locating the one that actually aligns with your teachings. Is there a specific, a specific website or resource that I could use that would coincide? Just because I was I was interested in reading more of the passages, you know what I mean? Just to you know broaden, I guess, my understanding or knowledge of it. I was just wondering if you had. Sure. Are you requesting the life story of the Buddha or his final words that Brent was just asking about? So I think the one it was about uh, the creative, God's creative action one, I think it's AM 361. I went and I put that into the Google search and then I put the Buddha um, and then a lot of stuff came up and it was kind of very cumbersome to kind of go through each one to try to find the one that actually reflected what the teaching was that you provided. And I, I just didn't know if you had a specific or knew of a specific web link that I could go to to kind of read more of that passage. Sure. If you have time after class, you can stick around and I can show you through Zoom. I can share my screen and show you how to pull up the source of the Pali Canon through the references that I provide in the book series. Yes. Yeah, you're welcome. And anybody who would like to stick around and see that, you're welcome to do that. Okay. All right, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So what I'll do is just move on to the very last thing that I'm gonna share with you today related to this talk on the difficult human existence, sickness, aging, and death, is that I'd like you to understand and keep in mind that no one ever said that life would be easy, but it's also not supposed to be tough because sometimes in life, with in the unenlightened state, life can feel very tough. Life's not supposed to be easy. No one ever said that, but it's also not supposed to be tough either. Learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings, it's not easy, but it'll ensure that life is not tough. 
because as you learn and you practice and you train your mind, it can be really challenging moving the mind to this enlightened mental state because the mind wants to stay in the darkness. It's holding on to all this disgruntledness and this anger and resentment and all that conditioning of the mind, all those pollutions. The mind's holding on to all that stuff and you're trying to take it in another direction. And the mind, remember, is craving permanence. It does not like change. It doesn't like impermanence. So when you start moving the mind towards this enlightened mental state, the mind can oftentimes fight you. It can really struggle. It can be difficult. You can even be crying and upset on your journey to enlightenment. It's not the yellow brick road where everything's peaceful and joyful all the way to enlightenment. There's some real hard work to do this inner work, right? But by doing this inner work, you can heal from what hurt you so that you never need to ever hurt ever again. But in the process, it's going to be painful as you're letting go of some of these attachments and some of these cravings that you have. And this is part of moving the mind to the enlightened mental state that sometimes I describe it as you need to walk through the fire in order to appreciate the fresh air on the other side. So no one ever said this life would be easy, but it's not supposed to be tough either. And as you're learning the teachings of the Buddha, it's not easy because you're moving this mind to do something that it's not really wanting to do. But by learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha, it will ensure that life is not tough because when you're lifting out this pollution out of the mind, by the time you get to enlightenment, life is at ease. Everything is very comfortable. We have a phrase here in Thailand, it's called sabai sabai. It means everything's very comfortable. Everything's at ease. So by the time you get to enlightenment, everything's sabai sabai. Your life is very comfortable, very at ease. You don't have harshness and bitterness and hostility. You don't have arguments. You're not disgruntled or agitated or frustrated frustrated, you're not sad or angry or bitter or harsh. These are all things that we experience in the unenlightened state. And if you can think about all the times you've ever been angry or frustrated or feeling guilty or shameful or fearful or having stress or anxiety, that takes up an enormous amount of time of your life. You can free yourself of all of that. You can free the mind of all of those things where now you can just be at ease. So it's not going to be easy to move to this enlightened mental state, but it's not difficult either. But this is kind of like the last struggle of all struggles. By the time you get to enlightenment, you've overcome so many obstacles in your life that now things are just so easy. It's kind of like upgrading an operating system. If you've ever had a computer that you needed to upgrade the operating system, when you were on the old archaic operating system, you thought it worked just fine and you knew where all the icons were and you just kind of went about your work, not really giving much of a fuss. But then as you started upgrading the operating system of your computer, it was kind of challenging for a few days or a few weeks trying to figure out where they moved all the settings to and where the icons went to. But over time, after a couple of weeks, when you got up and running on this new operating system, you're like, wow, this is so much easier. I can do so much more. It's so much better. Wow, why didn't they do this a long time ago? But in the process of upgrading, it was kind of challenging. So it's the same kind of thing as that you're upgrading from unenlightened 1.0, this software that the mind has, unenlightened 1.0. And now you're upgrading to enlightenment 9.0. And there's these incremental upgrades that you've got to gradually work towards, almost like a stair step. 
And sometimes you take these backward steps, but you just keep the mind focused on this continuous progress to gradually move towards more and more wisdom that you're learning, reflecting, and practicing, and never believing any of the teachings. And you can use Gautama Buddha as inspiration because while he was a Buddha and he had certain qualities of mind that you don't actually have, his mind functioned exactly the same way as yours, by and large. That he experienced frustration and agitation and annoyance, and he did all the same things that you did. I'm sure that he used alcohol. I'm sure that he had sex because, you know, he uh, had a son. I'm sure that he had difficulties with lying and stealing at different times in his life. This is one of the ways that a Buddha understands the natural laws is they've done unwise things and then they experience the unwholesome results of those things. So he overcame those obstacles. He overcame this difficult human existence through training his mind and he had the ability to do that on his own. But you have the ability to accomplish that too. You're just going to need teachers and guides to help you. A Buddha can do this on their own, but everybody else is going to need teachers and guides to be able to help them along the path. And that's why I'm here is to provide you guidance. That's why I provide you books and audiobooks and videos and podcasts and online classes, courses, retreats, personal guidance, a Facebook group to be able to ask questions and all these things that I'm sharing with you to be able to help you learn and practice the teachings. You just need to decide that you're done with the anger. You're done with the bitterness and hostility. You're tired of feeling stress and anxiety and you're ready to get rid of it. You're ready to get rid of this difficult human existence. And when you're ready to do that, then I'm here to be able to help you and provide all these resources, all these personal guidance, the classes, courses, and retreats, all available to you at no cost. So you can access all of that through our website, and you can even reach out to me privately, and I will help you as well. So if you guys have any questions related to anything that I've been sharing today or any other time, you're welcome to ask those questions before I wrap up class. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, so Mayuli is asking a question here. I'm noticing that I'm getting attached to the Buddha. When reading his last word, I get teary. Is there something specific I cannot to let myself get attached? So what I would suggest that you do is occasionally read his last words because what the mind's going to want to do in the unenlightened state is when you experience these painful feelings, it's going to want to push this away and be like, oh, I'm never going to read that ever again because I didn't like that painful feeling. And this is called aversion where the mind is pushing away a person or pushing away a situation, thinking that that's going to solve the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem. So bring out those words every once in a while, whether it's once a week or once every two weeks and read them and get to the point where you experience less and less and less discontent you expose your mind to this because I experienced a bit of that too at different times in my journey too when I would read his last words and that's the way I solved it is that I would read them occasionally expose the mind to it and you would notice that there's less and less discontentedness until eventually you get to the point where there's no discontentedness after reading his last words so that's the way to eliminate that craving or that attachment to the Buddha himself okay I'm not seeing any other questions. I see a bunch of whys and different comments of, of appreciation for sharing the teachings. You guys are very welcome. Pleased to help all of you guys. Okay, so what I'll do then is I'll just in class by 
thanking all of you guys for joining for today's class and remind you about our upcoming classes because next week on Sunday, I'm going to be in chapter 20, which is titled Animal to Human, the Evolution of Our Consciousness. This is going to help you to understand how one moves from the animal realm into the human realm and then how you progress in terms of developing your mind and becoming more and more enlightened because essentially what a lot of us have experienced is rebirth out of the animal realm but our mind holds on to this animal consciousness and even though we're in the human realm the human mind can function very much like an animal sometimes but what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is becoming a better and better human being so i'm going to show you how what you're experiencing in the unenlightened state can be connected to your previous existences in the animal realm and you'll see these animalistic tendencies that one experiences in the unenlightened state and you can learn how to shed all of that and becoming more and more wise and a better and better human being so i'm going to be talking about that next sunday and remember you can read that in the book this is volume one developing a life practice the path that leads to enlightenment you can download it from our website for free you can take it and go print it you can order printed versions on Amazon, or you can get printed versions here at the temple where I teach in Chiang Mai. And essentially, all we do is ask you to reimburse us for the printing cost so that you can get access to these teachings that you need. That's what we're going to be doing on Sunday. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be sharing meditation with you guys, guiding you in a session, and then opening up to any and all questions that you guys would like to ask. Keep in mind that this week I'm teaching a retreat here in Chiang Mai that you guys are all welcome to attend either here in Chiang Mai or through Zoom or YouTube or Facebook. I'm live streaming this retreat. This retreat is everything you need in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. So the first two and a half days, it's all the foundational teachings. And then the last two and a half days, it's all the unique teachings you need to get to the first stage of enlightenment. I just started that retreat today at 3 p.m. Thai time and it was live streamed and it was available in Zoom that you guys can tune in live to these sessions and they're recorded. So if you can't attend live, because I know that some of you guys were probably sleeping at 3 p.m. Thai time. So you can go to YouTube and you can see the class that I taught. And it's very similar to what I just taught you guys here today. And then over the coming days, Monday through Thursday, I'm going to be teaching 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. This is the first session for three and a half hours. Then we're going to go outside in Chiang Mai and do various activities. And then we're going to come back to the temple from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. And I'm going to share some more teachings. And you can look at your local time zone and adjust your time zone. You'll see me live streaming into YouTube and Facebook. And you'll also see me in Zoom if you guys would like to join Zoom. And if you can't attend live, like I mentioned, you can watch the recordings at any time. But these are all the teachings you need over a five-day period in order to make your way to the first stage of enlightenment. You won't be in the first stage of enlightenment by the end of the five days days, but you'll have all the teachings you need and you can learn about how I've set up the retreat and what's going to be taught by going and looking at that recording that I did at 3 p.m. today and launched the retreat here at the temple in Chiang Mai. So I'd like to thank all of you guys for joining and being interested to understand the teachings of the Buddha. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your dedication and determination to learn and train and develop your mind. This is helping you. It's helping those close to you. And it's helping all of humanity become a better and better place for all of us. So thank you for your dedication. 
Perhaps we'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.